This is Global News Watch. Former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and Paramilitary Operations Officer for the CIA and current National Security and Defense Analyst for ABC News, Mick Mulroy, joins the Media Mavens podcast for a monthly review of global events and their impact in our lives. And here is the host of Global News Watch, the CEO of Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, Marjorie DeHay with Media Mavis Podcast Global News Segment. We're here with Mick Mulroy, former Deputy Assistant, Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and former CIA and current National Security and Defense Analyst for ABC News. Hey, Mick, welcome back to the show. Hey, guys. Glad to be back. Happy yes. New Year. Happy New Year's. It's not so happy around the world like we all thought it was going to be, but super glad. I know your time's limited. Right now, we are working on the whole Russian-Ukraine situation out there. So I'm happy to have you on. I know you're doing a lot of interviews right now across the board. So Rick said you took some time out for us. But let's talk about an update on this. I know we talked to you a little bit earlier. There's been a lot of recent announcements. But we want to talk about, I think right now, the big question is how serious Putin is to invade Ukraine right now. So we want to kind of get some feedback from you. Yeah, so I think for your listeners who may not be fully familiar with the situation, to give a little background, jump into your question there, Sarah. So obviously, when the Soviet Union fell apart in the 90s, several former parts of the Soviet Union formed countries, right? And whether it's Georgia or the Ukraine, Kazakhstan or AIDS, these uh, former Soviet states, if you will. At the time, there was a young KGB colonel named Vladimir Putin who I think everybody knows now it's president of Russia. So he, he took that pretty personally. And I think part of this is him trying to regain influence in these former Soviet states, just to put those in perspective. He has made it clear that he at least is threatening to invade the Ukraine. He did it in 2014, but he did it in an area called a Crimea, which had a very large ethnically Russian population. It's also known Crimea for a lot of Russian military retiring there. So that was an area that, although totally illegal and against all international norms, at least from a, a military perspective, he had it easier than he will when it comes to the actual invasion of the Ukraine. So there's two thoughts on why he's doing this. One thought is that it's simply to gain attention. He's essentially created the crisis of which he's ostensibly shocked by. And I guess from that perspective, if if that was his intent, it's worked, right? So he has several meetings with President Biden. He's got NATO meeting and talking to him, and they're going to hold meetings all with the US, NATO, with Russia. The other belief is it's not bluffing. He's amassed over 100,000 forces on the border of Ukraine. And there are some military analysts that would say he's simply waiting for the conditions to be right. And that includes the ground to be hard enough from being frozen that he can move large, you know, main battle tanks and, and large scale armored personnel carriers and artillery. So I don't know which one's the right answer. I don't know that anybody knows except for maybe President Putin, but that, that is the two trains of thought right now that this is either a ruse to get this attention or that he is serious about actually invading the Ukraine. Yeah. So, you know, I read, I think the BBC just posted, it was talking about this, that, you know, Russia is accusing NATO countries 
pumping up the Ukraine with weapons and the U.S. is kind of stoking these tensions and promoting it as well, which Putin says is, you know, obviously another threat to them. They're not just going to sit by idly. You know, he, a comment was made that they were going to take adequate military technical response measures to react harshly to these unfriendly steps. So it's making it seem like the U.S. is the one egging on the Ukraine on this. I mean, is there any truth to a lot of this or do you really feel this is just media spin on there just to get attention over there? So, I mean, he is correct in that the U.S. and other Western allies have supported the Ukraine. And they did so in earnest starting in 2015. Why? Because the Russians invaded the Ukraine in 2014. So again, this is a crisis created by Russia that then becomes a crisis for Russia. So we have continued our support through the last administration and the current administration for our partners in the Ukraine. And I don't see, I mean, if anything, the actions of deploying 100,000 troops on the border would indicate to us that perhaps we need to do more, not less, when it comes to the Ukraine. It's also important to note that NATO has already offered both the Ukraine and Georgia conditional membership. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But the Secretary General of NATO came out today and said that they would absolutely not withdraw those offers. So one could argue objectively, if you're looking at this from the analytical point of view, that what Putin's doing is actually solidifying NATO and probably all of the the former caucuses, if you will, of the Soviet Union that aren't directly under the sphere of influence of Russia are probably really thinking about being part of NATO right now because of the actions of Russia. So, I mean, obviously, countries should have an interest in the security of their border. But the idea that a few soldiers going through Poland is a threat to Moscow, I think is just unrealistic and just not not, not a fair depiction of the current situation from the NATO side. You know, NATO seems to have great involvement, obviously, and it goes beyond that Eastern European, because, you know, if Eastern European falls, we go back to history, where then, of course, Europe has a great voice, and Europe has basically said, we have to be involved with this. U.S. says it's trying to be pragmatic. Russia obviously wants to go back and claim as much land as it can. So this has all come to kind of this breaking point, according to the news that potentially this invasion could occur, uh, you know, the next couple months. How prepared do you think the Ukrainians are for this to happen? And how prepared do you think Europe is if this does happen? So that's a two-part question, but not necessarily the same answer. So to start with the Ukrainians, They've been at war essentially since 2014. So, and there's been a lot of effort done by our special operations and intelligence folks to ensure that they have the, the type of units that would make it very painful should the Russians invade. Now, I would say from all open source information that they would likely occupy simply by force of will a lot of the Ukraine. They will take a lot of casualties. But when they get to the cities, they're going to find a fortified scenario, which will not be easy to fight their way through. And then once they actually, if they can take it, they're going to have to deal with one of the most ferocious insurgencies that we've seen in decades and decades. So this could be a terrible strategic mistake by Russia if they decide to do this. NATO will obviously then increase all of their activities on the border of all these states, potentially invite uh, Georgia immediately to join in other border countries 
who will then join, I would guess, because of the fear that they will be the next Ukraine. So it could be a, a terrible strategic blunder by Russia. So the second part of your question, Marjorie, was about NATO. So, you know, one of the things we've seen in the past, and I think it's fair, although I think NATO is probably the most important military alliance in history, is that the member states could do more to help the alliance. <laughs> they, they could do what they've agreed to do, which is, I think, it's 2% of their uh, you know, national gross domestic product on their own security. And some countries have not done that. And if they ever needed a wake-up call to get in compliance with their already agreed upon, this should be it. So the U.S., whether it's um, whether it was President Obama or President Trump or now President Biden, have always said that the all member states of NATO should be paying their fair share. And what that means is paying is putting that money toward their own military. So it's not it's it, that's what they're asking for. If they don't see why that needs to happen now, then I don't know what to tell them. But they need to. They, there's a lot that NATO could do to improve their military position and make Russia think maybe three or four times before they do something like they did in Crimea or what they're doing now. I mean, I think it is all about uh, ego, land grab, like to Marjorie's point with Russia, because r- what Russia wants, I want to focus on Russia for a second. They're asking for NATO to abandon all military activity in Eastern Europe. And because in short, they want NATO to return to its pre-borders from 1997. But they're also saying Putin's talking with the U.S. to focus to beyond all nuclear weapons from being deployed in these territories. And they want a treaty. And then I know Biden made a comment at one point, it was in the news, that we were going to cut off all ties. It seems like Russia wants the U.S. I mean, and it could be just a ploy. I mean, we all know the relations have always been um, a lot of contention between us and Russia. But they're asking for NATO to pull all military activity from Eastern Europe and for the U.S. to back that decision. Now, to me, is that more of a, is that giving him, it's kind of like playing chess, an angle to move in to control it? Or is there any legitimacy behind, is there anything smart about asking everybody to pull back, to play nicely? Or is that just a play for Russia to kind of pivot in to get what they want? So I can see from the point of view of negotiations why you want to start off pretty ambitious. I can use that word. So he's also asking that we permanently say we're never going to invite any of these countries to join NATO. So I know he knows that that's not going to be a thing we can do. It's a non-starter from Secretary Blinken said that today in front of Congress. That's not going to happen. So he probably started off with that thinking that then other things that he's asking for would be more acceptable. To your question, Sarah, I don't think there's any chance that NATO is going to guarantee we're not going to do military actions on the border countries or they're sovereign countries. I mean, we're talking about these like they're up for grabs, right? They're not. That's not the way the world should work anymore. That shouldn't work that way after World War II, right? Where people just decide they bargain over a country like that. We can actually decide whether Russia should own Georgia. And I bring that up for good reason. There's things he's asking for that NATO doesn't have any authority to do. You know what I mean? And nor would they want to. But I do think I do think it's important that we maintain a dialogue to your point that there we might break off relations. I mean, we didn't break off relations in the height of the Cold War for good reason. We want to have that ability to de-escalate situations. You know, we don't need all the, you know, ego-driven macho folks of the world plunging us into another war in Europe. I mean, this is this is something that might not be grasping many people's attention until you wake up with BBC and CNN International showing pictures of Russian tank 
battalions going into Ukraine. And then the entire world will focus on that and nothing else for a while until that's resolved, because that's another war on the doorsteps of Europe, or in Europe, basically. And that would change the scenario, because then anything that happens from there could escalate into another, you know, dare I say it, world war, right? Because if NATO then reacts and it, it escalates, then you have Russia be NATO, which means the U.S. We have a treaty obligation, just so everybody's aware, under Article 5, I believe it is, of the NATO alliance. You know, if they attack one, like Poland, they attack all of us. So we will, we will defend them and we are obligated to do that. And that means, you know, let's, let's, that's why I'm pushing for not breaking up relations and for cooler heads prevailing because that would be a disaster. So, which makes sense. But, you know, Russia, I mean, just the thinking behind this is that Ukraine's current leadership is running a anti-Russian project, which Putin decides it's a disintegration of historical Russia when the whole thing collapsed in 1991. And, you know, he's now saying these arrangements is what's happening. You have the 2015, 2015 Minsk peace deal that was haunting the conflict. It seems like all of these things back to the beginning is like you said, is it really feeding into his ego of control or is did the Ukraine really run an anti-Russian project? Is there any truth to that right now? So I imagine after they're invaded by Russia and part of their territory was taken, they probably ran a bunch of anti-Russian projects, as anybody would, when you're occupied by a foreign power. So, I mean, if President Putin is upset about that, I suppose that's up to him. But I think we need to put it in perspective as a country that saw a portion of its territory annexed. I had been on, and I, like I wreck, I, we were talking before the podcast, I've been on foreign media where I'm directly up, up against, if you will, at least philosophically, Russian policymakers and, and academics. They will claim that, you know, there's ethnic Russians in Ukraine. So they've decided that they're under some kind of threat. So they gave them citizenship. So now they have to go defend their citizens in the Ukraine. That's their logic behind it. Of course, one could flip that and say, well, folks, so if there's ethnic Ukrainians or any other ethnic groups that is in that region of the world that is in Russia, can those countries then, like Uzbekistan and Uzbeks, give them citizenship and claim that they can go into Russia to defend their new citizens because of their ethnic background? Of course not. Russia wouldn't take, wouldn't stand for that in a heartbeat. So a lot of this stuff is like, it's just nonsense, to be honest. And what's not nonsense is that this could escalate into a significant conflict and that it should be taken serious. But some of these arguments, I just don't think we should be taking serious in the sense that it, it now it's all about the West trying to debunk everything that Russia said. It's time for the West, and I think they are today, with Secretary Blinken and the UN General Secretary, coming out from their perspective and demanding things from their perspective, like get off the border of the Ukraine. How about that? How about not worrying about whether we're spending defensive money on defensive missile systems in NATO when their only use they will ever have is if Russia shoots missiles into NATO? So I do think where we look like we're heading is there will be some discussions between the U.S., NATO, and I'll put them together, and Russia about arms control, which will be a two-way street from Secretary Clinton's statements today. So it's not just about what NATO is going to do, it's also going to be about what Russia is going to do, potentially even nuclear weapons. But this is going to be a two-sided thing. And I think that that would be a good thing as long as at the end of it, it de-escalates the chance of a conflict 
and that both sides are actually making concessions, not just concede one side concede. You know, it is very interesting, everything that you're saying, because the U.S. has been very clear that they're going to support Ukraine as a sovereign territory. They're saying deploying troops, definitely not on the table. But there's also been this talk that of financial sanctions, like disconnecting Russia from the SWIFT system, which could probably literally collapse the Russian economy. That seems like a very big threat and probably not very likely. Why do you think they're using that type of maneuver? So that is true. I think that's, that's a really good, good point because the most significant thing I, I've heard that, we're, that we, the West, are going to do is these crippling sanctions and removal, like you said, of Russia from monetary systems and, quite frankly, the ending of the Nord Stream agreement. So that would be crippling to Russia. That's another reason why this should be a strategic blunder. I only see us doing that in the event they actually invade Ukraine. To do it prior to might actually cause them to react and, and do something like that. So I think they're going to have to take all this into account. So from their perspective, there's one thing that a lot of people who are involved in conflict say is they always turn the map around, right? And what that means is look at it from your adversary's perspective. So if we're, you know, theoretically turning the map around now, if we're Russia, we're saying, okay, we invade Ukraine. I'm going to put 100,000 plus troops there. We're going to take a lot of casualties. We'll probably be given crippling sanctions that will really hurt the economy, the Russian economy. We'll lose agreements like the Nord Stream. And everything we're worried about, like all these other countries, Georgia, et cetera, will want to join NATO. And maybe NATO will just say, absolutely, because we just saw what Russia did to the Ukraine which then defeats the whole point. So I think we have to look at it from Russia's perspective. Things aren't so rosy. and uh, But again, we should not want that to happen because that causes the chance of an escalation, of course, for the poor people of Ukraine. And if you if you look at what they're doing right now, they're, they're already talking about uh, females uh, registering for the draft and being drafted. I saw one stat where 50% of uh, males in Ukraine have already said they would join the army. And so we're talking people from, you know, a young age to an old age. So they're going to fight like essentially the country of, of the Ukraine. And when you get into the areas where they're going, they are very much nationalist. So they're not, they're not going to be playing on any Russian sympathies because of their ethnic. They're going to fight and it's going to be ugly. And it's not, I mean, I, if I was, I'm obviously not an advisor to the Kremlin, but you know, I'd be saying, Hey, if this is just to get us attention on the international stage, I think we got it. If you really want to take this on, you risk the collapse of the Russian economy and being bogged down in a war you can't get out with in safe face and by getting out. Mick, what about some of these countries or Nordic states like Sweden and Finland? They're not part of the alliance, but they're strengthening ties. You know, they're not giving any wiggle room for maneuvers. Their military commanders, prime ministers are saying, it would completely undermine their country's military strategy. And I think some of the concerns for them, whether they're part of NATO or not, is that U.S. European allies are now saying they are not having a voice in the talks between U.S. and Russia. How is this affecting our relationships with our European allies? So another good point, because Finland just came out yesterday or the day before and said, we're not taking off the table joining NATO. So again, this is unintended consequence. You start threatening countries, you start, you, that you already invaded. Now, like, we can't forget that, uh, you know, what happened in 2014, but you start threatening countries, other countries start saying, well, you know, I have no real desire or 
urgency to join NATO. But if they're going to start doing that, then I do. And if Finland to say that, I think is an indication that they, this might be the unintended consequences to these, you know, building up of forces on the border and, and threatening like this. I don't know. I, I think it would be not a wise idea for NATO to start, you know, allowing all these folks to join right now, right? But they're certainly not going to come out and say, no, Finland can't join, Georgia can't join, Ukraine. They're not going to do that now because it would show weakness. And long term, whether they join or not, I don't know. I mean, I mean, you really have to look at it from this perspective. Does anybody really believe that NATO wants to go into Russia and occupy Russia and take part of Russia? Nobody believes that. Nobody. Nobody in the right mind believes that that would be something that NATO would, Europe would think is a good idea. So, I mean, what is it exactly he's, he's so concerned about? I don't know. I think it's primarily to get himself elevated on the national stage so that he can look like the counter to the United States. When in reality, Russia's economy is equal to the state of New York. We have to put these things in perspective. People tend to elevate our adversaries onto status points of the United States. So New York has a great economy. I'm certainly not dissing it, but it's one of 50 states. They have a larger economy than Russia. So we need to, and we pay, we put way more money into our defense than Russia. So he likes to do things like this to get elevated to the state. So people are talking, President Biden, President Putin, they're talking. But essentially, he's not on the same stage and Russia is not on the same. I know like, you know, the UK, which is a very big, stable economic stability for Europe, you know, they're saying that they're considering an extension of defense support. So I feel like this is having this ripple effect out into the countries that we have tight relations with that have never been in areas of conflict or controversy. But it seems like everybody's now starting to wake up, rally and take this more serious than they have in the past. Yeah, I think there's, I, if you look at a lot of the recent books coming out, a lot of the discussion, there's this issue of us. I think one book that I would recommend that I read um, over the holidays is called Twilight of Democracies. I don't know her. I think her name's Ann Applebaum, if I recall correctly. She's talking about something that a lot of people are talking about. There's like a, a lurch away from democracies. I mean, some people would even say there's elements in the United States that are pushing this, but it's, in, in toward authoritarianism, which is all around the world right now. It's all through Africa. There's all through, you know, look at all our adversaries, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran. These are all authoritarian states of which human rights has little to no relevance, right? And they're definitely not democracy. So if you look at this as a broader context, those democracies in Europe need to wake up, right? So we shouldn't have to ask them to pay 2% of their own money on their own defense. They should be paying 3%. Because they want to, right? The U.S. has a unique role in the world, I think, as the leader of the free world. But that doesn't mean we do all. So we need partners in that, not people that are, you know, reliant upon us completely. So I think, if anything, this activity may have woken Europe up to their need to have a strong defense and to make sure it's not just on paper. Uh, there's a lot of countries in Europe where their military is essentially a club and they don't function very often. There's some that are very, and you know, very healthy and very active, and they've fought alongside us in places like Afghanistan. So I, I, I commend them a lot for that. But I think they need to realize that Russia is a modern military that is full, that is very capable, and they cannot always rely on the United States to simply cover everything 
that they should be doing for themselves. So I hope this is a wake-up call for them, and I hope they do uh, take it seriously. You mentioned the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline going into Germany, and Germany's foreign minister has said that if this happens, the gaslight could not come into service. I mean, this is obviously something that Germany does need. So where do you think Germany is going to land if there is? Are they going to say, okay, we'll find another source for gas? Or do you think that this is really going to hurt the German economy? So I'm not sure. It's a very good question, but I don't want to pretend to be a German expert, certainly on energy. I would say that there's a lot of people that are, that I read, that are talking about how Germany may need to invest in some nuclear power plants, just like a lot of other countries are around the world. I think the UAE just invested in four. If they had that, and and it is clean energy as long as it's done correctly, and I, I'm fully confident if the Germans are going to do anything, it's going to be done correctly and by the book and by the numbers, and it's going to be safe, they would have to rely on on this energy source from Russia, which is one of the biggest threats to Germany and Europe. So I would hope that they would take this opportunity, just like when it comes to determining how much they're going to spend on our own defense, to look at potentially being more self-sufficient when it comes to energy and not rely on this. I don't know the politics in Germany on that, but obviously if Russia invades the Ukraine, I think they've already said it's over. So Russia will lose substantially economically based on that. Wait, quick question. I know we've talked about, we've gone around the world a little bit, but China's involvement from the Taliban to the Middle East. And I know the allies with us between China and Russia are always in contention, especially in the Middle East. Do you think if Putin does push this forward that we're going to have issues with, is China going to start funding nuclear arms to them, funding money taking sides, or do you think they're going to step out of this completely? So China's normal, I think, foreign policy is to stay out of conflicts. You know, in that, they're smart, right? They generally focus on, okay, what is in it for China economically, especially when it comes to natural resources? And I think they view conflicts as not good for China. So they will play both sides, right? They will buy oil from Iran, and then they will go into Saudi Arabia, according to recent media reports, and build their domestic missile defense. From who? Iran, who they're buying oil. So I don't see them entangling themselves in a Russian-made conflict. They will probably take advantage of the attention of the United States being shifted to it. But I don't, I don't necessarily see them siding with anybody in any conflict like that unless absolutely required to. So quick questions. I, I, I know we run out, we have a few more questions here, but Am I correct that the Russian and U.S. have security talks in Geneva in a few days here coming up? Do you have any input on where we think the outcome is? Well, because Russia's saying they don't see any conflict, but then they say they don't see any resolution. They're kind of like duck or rabbit season. Do you think we're going to have a strong outcome after the Geneva talks? Or do you think it's just kind of same conversation over and over a different way? So a couple of things. I think you're seeing a a preview, if you will, with Secretary Blinken's testimony being Congress. So he essentially taken off the table. We're not going to tell people they can't join NATO or things like that. But he has said, we're totally open to talk about arms control and potentially even NATO activity. So I think, I think from the Russian perspective, they can take that to heart if that's, if that's what they're intended. But he's also made it clear that it's going to be a quid pro quo. So if NATO reduces some kind of weapon system, Russia's going to. If NATO's going to stop doing something, Russia's going to. 
So I think I think that is where both sides will be going into these discussions. I would be hesitant to really pay attention to the readout of what was said in it. Those tend to be basically just talking points on what I think Russia is more more guilty of this than we are. But I guess both sides are going to are going to portray it the way they want. I would look for the actions which will indicate what was actually agreed upon coming out of that. If an exercise is canceled in NATO, if Russia pulls off the border and to a certain limit, then we'll know that's what they discussed and that's what they agreed to. But, you know, I think we should all hope for this to end the current stand down and for diplomacy to prevail. War is not something anybody should want to get into. Certainly when the, what we used to call near peer competitors, now I guess we're calling them strategic competitors fight a lot of terrible things happen. So we should want this to work. And I think we should be rooting for the diplomats on both sides when it comes to this. I think the best points that you made through this is it's really the Ukrainians, their country, they're going to defend their country. There's 44 million people there willing to defend their country versus the population of Russia has like 140 million. It's a large population. I think people you know, may not be aware of how big a country Ukraine is. And I think that the people, as you said, they, they've been fighting this. They're willing to fight this. And, you know, I think that this is their country to fight for. And I think we should provide the support that they need to stay a sovereign country because they are a sovereign country. So any last thoughts on this situation and what you see? I know there on January 10th, there's a big summit coming up about this. Any thoughts on that? So to your point on the size of the Ukraine, 44 million, to give you a perspective, there's 28 million people in Afghanistan. And you saw how easy, not easy, that was for the U.S., the, the world's you know greatest uh, military to deal with. So in that, Ukraine's also a modern military who's very highly trained and very highly motivated. So to your point, this is not going to be a good thing for the Russians. They might succeed in occupying territory. They will wish they didn't once that insurgency kicks in. So again, if it was closing statement, I'd reiterate, we should be rooting for the diplomat. This is not a movie. When countries like this fight, terrible things happen, and it's and it's usually to innocent civilians every time and children. So let's let's hope that this doesn't happen and that the diplomats uh, can come to some kind of agreeable solution. And then as all members of the, the free West, if you will, the free countries in the world, I think we do need to start paying attention, uh, not just to COVID, which is, you know, obviously important for the world, but also this rise of authoritarianism. If we believe that democracy is the way to go, individual human rights are the way are important, and that people have the should have the ability to say what they want and believe what they want, then we need to say so. Because there seems to be a lurch, and it's not just coming from Mick Mulroy saying this from Montana. There's people who think about these things all over the world right now, talk about writing books and talking about it. I think this is at the time that everybody who has a voice and everybody does should be talking about it and saying, you know, no, that's not the way we should be going. We need to start sticking up for our ideals and not apologize. I think talking about the human rights, I think the problem is we get so focused on the navigation of strategies and military maneuvers that it is becomes all the human lives that are affected in the long term. And re, I don't know, probably a few years ago, I mean, Putin's commenting that he's accepting Ukraine citizens. Their passports are good. Come over. There's no keeping them away. And I, so I know there's a lot of voices being said and heard out there over there because for the first time they did open up 
to accept Ukraine passports and for people to come over there. But again, we just don't know if it's a ploy or a sense of control because, you know, as of now, Moscow is still denying any attack on the Ukraine. As we understand, they have a right to move troops in their own soil and their own areas they see fit. I just feel like this is always such a historical issue for land grab over there in Eastern Europe. Everybody wants control. And I feel like, yeah, we're going to accept you, human life. We'll take your passports, come over, open arms. We're not planning on attacking. We're going to stay on our own playground. But everybody's trying to push that line back to own more and more of more lands of other countries. So, I mean, I just feel like this is kind of like we talked about when we had our Middle East podcast with you on Global News Watch. It always seems to be about taking control of land and other countries. Are we just, is this going to be another ongoing historical conversation like we have with the Middle East? It's never going to be resolved. It's always going to be something that we have to keep an eye on. I mean, is it always, is this always going to be on the docket for you to be watching over, given your background and what's going on? Yes, I think, Sarah, I think absolutely. So if you're seeing it in Kyrgyzstan right now, Russia's sending in troops. I would say that it isn't everybody that's trying to do land grabs. It's Russia. There's nobody in NATO trying to do a land grab on Russia. Now, maybe from his perspective, he's saying we're trying to get the former Soviet states into NATO. But his activities would indicate, at least to them, they should be, right? Unless you want to be the next Ukraine. So I think you're correct that this isn't just going to be like, we're going to have the discussions in a couple of 10 days, and then this is going to go away. Uh, this is obviously an obsession of president of Russia, and he's going to never give up his idea of getting, and he is getting influence in Belarus, for example. He has complete influence, right? So the Russians are a formidable adversary. They tend to do most things in what I'd call a regular warfare, the gray zone, which is, seems to be the, the term that everybody's using now. But they can go conventional, and they obviously have threatened the conventional by putting all these forces in order. So let's hope that those who believe this is more about grabbing attention and not grabbing territory are correct. Because, I mean, from their perspective, they were successful. They got all of our attention, but not an actual land grab. And that they're simply waiting for the actual environment and uh, conditions to be right for an actual major invasion from a conventional military force. So if that's the case, then then we got a lot more to discuss. If not, then we can just talk about what happens at the summit and, and hopefully this will pop down. Yeah. It was so good having you on the show with us again, Mick. I know you got to run over to ABC right now and you'll keep us posted. But we're looking forward to getting an update from you, having you back on again next month on Global News Watch. But unless you have any parting thoughts on this, good luck with ABC and we look forward to our next update with you. All right. You guys have a great weekend and uh, I'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Mick. Thank you for joining us for Global News Watch. To find more podcasts and to learn more about our host and guests, please visit MediaMavensPodcast.com. Thank you for joining us for the special podcast report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.